We've been busy, excited. Many have been busy. I shouldn't say me, but many others have put many hours in to the preparation for VBS. And so we're excited for this this week. And uh, it gives us an opportunity as a church family to uh, to demonstrate what what I'd like to preach about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I read this week that a, a new study is, as of May uh, has found that nearly half of all Americans feel lonely with young people in particular experiencing the brunt of the pain. The survey said one health insurer took a nationwide survey of 20,000 adults and found that 54% of those that responded said they feel like no one actually knows them well. It might seem shocking to you today in light of the social media age that we live in, but are we really better off with Facebook and Instagram? Additionally, that said here, 56% of people said that, said that they, uh, sorry, let me read this again. 56% of the people said the people they surround themselves around are not necessarily with them. And approximately 40% say they lack companionship. Their, their relationships aren't meaningful and that they feel isolated from others. Additionally, the survey found that younger Americans are hit harder with loneliness. The generation born between the mid-1990s and early 2000s, Generation Z, is coming to an age now and feels the lonely the most, researchers found. It seems as though at our current pace, this dilemma of loneliness and isolation is only going to grow. And maybe it is because of the rise of social media. You know, you can sign up for a Facebook account or Instagram in minutes and connect to hundreds of people in a short time. And many, I believe, in that generation, even in mine, uh, feel that this will sustain their need to be accepted, to have friendships, to be with people. But it's a mirage. It's like Minecraft for adults. Kids, you know what Minecraft is, right? They're trying to build a world that really doesn't exist. Social media will always disappoint because you can't replace real people with a profile picture. People need people. So let me ask, how well do you know your neighbors? How would you know if your neighbors are in trouble? How well do you know your coworkers? How would you know if they're suffering? How well do you know the people that you share a row with at church every Sunday? I know living in this sin-cursed world, there's much happening in the lives of people we share space with. And that if we found out about that, would cause us probably to pray more, to be more kind, to be more patient with people. Would you be shocked to know that roughly half your neighbors are probably lonely? isolated from others? And so what should be the response for the church? What, what should we do? And you know, when, I'm, when I say the church, I don't mean the organization, I don't mean the building, I mean you. Right? We go to a building to worship with the church. And I know in our culture we say we go to church, I say it all the time too, but you don't go to church, you are the church. So what should the church do? If, if over half the population in some way is experiencing loneliness, should we do anything or should we just live and hope that it will go away? I think the answer is in scripture. I think 
in my study this week, I think the answer is in Hebrews 13. It gives us some hope for the task. So if you haven't already turned there, Hebrews 13, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Not every part. There's some things I'll skip over, but follow with me as I read Hebrews 13, starting at verse 1. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember, those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The last number of weeks in the summertime when I've been able to share, we've been talking about what makes a healthy Christian. And this morning we're going to talk about the topic of hospitality. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the word hospitality? I'm sure... Uh, for me, I started thinking through, it wasn't completely what the Bible teaches. You might think of a clean home, or nice dishes, or Martha Stewart, or that perfect pot roast for dinner. But we don't find any of that in Scripture. Actually, that's the opposite of what you read in the Bible. I believe we have a better plan, a better picture of hospitality here in Hebrews 13. And so I want to walk through what is hospitality, first point. Second, why should we practice hospitality? And third, how, uh, how should we practice hospitality? Real simple, what, why, how? And so as we begin, let me pray, and then we'll get started. I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get into this. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as the body of Christ and to worship you. And we ask, God, that you would teach, that you would guide and lead your people to an understanding of what hospitality is, that you would see it in, in the scriptures here in Hebrews, and as we look at other passages, that, that you would be the teacher, that you would cement in their minds what it looks like and how it functions and how they can apply it to their lives. And God, will give you all the honor and glory for what you do in this place. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first, what is hospitality? What's Let's define things right at the outset. Hospitality, it's an attitude of the heart that seeks to turn strangers into guests, then, then into friends, and then eventually into brothers and sisters. Strangers into guests, then to friends, and then brothers and sisters. This, this pattern here. And we come to Hebrews 13, we come to the end of this letter that this author's been summing up a number of things as he closes out. And it can seem like he's jumping around a bit but I, from topic to another, but I, I believe there's some connection to these statements here. So, 
As we read here, verses one um, through five, let me read it again. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby have some entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love, excuse me, free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is to be the Christian life. Concern for those outside and concern for those in. They don't contradict each other, but it seems as though this has changed in our culture today. It may seem, and it did to me initially, that hospitality might have been easier for them then, but not today. Well, when did that change? Well, there's many different things. Maybe part of it is the age of enlightenment that had something to do with it in the early 18th century in Europe that filtered into America. It's what we call now the, the Western culture. That's our culture. A, a mighty shift in thinking, from thinking outward to now thinking inward. So now in our culture, we believe very strongly that the rights and happiness and interests of the individual will always take precedence over tradition, over the larger group or family or the clan or the community. And we've been indoctrinated in this view. It's, it's about us. And we live in the part of the world that holds high the individual right, the individual fulfillment, that that is what's most important, what's, what's best for me. And it's infiltrated everything in the Western culture, and it's even infiltrated the church. But the gospel says something different, doesn't it? The gospel shows us that our love is not for ourselves, but for others. Our care for those in different and difficult situations should cause us to make hard, personal decisions to help. The gospel says our money is not for us. Our, our sexuality is not just for our pleasure. It's, it's given to you by God in order to build the human community. All these things have been given to you. They're not just for you. The gospel is against Western individualism. Look at these briefly as we, we walk through these. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. We're, we're to show genuine brotherly love to one another in the church. And he says here, it should continue, meaning that it should already be happening. We could, it should keep on happening. As 1 John 3 says, we should be loving one another. It's, it should be a continual action. It's what separates us and the church as Christians from the world. We, we should stand out. But then jumping to verse 3 here in Hebrews 13, this love can sometimes be shown in extreme ways. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Sometimes the love we show for one another who are suffering is, is a radical love. 1 John 3, I mentioned it. 1 John 3, 16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. One radical example of this I came across this week is in the life of Charles Colson. He is most famous for his involvement with the Watergate scandal from President Richard Nixon. Because of Colson's misconduct, he was sentenced to uh, one to three years in prison for his obstruction of justice. About 10, min 10 months before entering prison, though, you might have read this, Colson came to Christ. He was regenerated. 
And while he was then in prison, this newly converted Colson faced some of the most trying circumstances in his life. His father, whom he was very close to, died. The Virginia Supreme Court revoked his license to practice law. Days later, he received a devastating call that his teenager son was also jailed for narcotics possession. And his wife, Patty, was sinking emotionally, physically, from bearing all of this by herself. But through it all, Colson had now new brothers in the faith who were also public servants in the government praying for him. One particular was Al Kiwi, veteran congressman from Minnesota. He had just begun mentoring Colson in the faith, even though he admitted that before Colson was saved that he couldn't stand to be around him. Kiwi said, remember, it's not liking Colson very much at first. He says, I was in Congress all the time and I refused to go to any meetings in the White House where Colson was present because I knew the kind of monkey business he was up to. Colson, with his trademark horn-rimmed glasses, was known as the evil genius of the Nixon administration. And, and, and Kiwi said he recalled when a friend of his called to say that Colson had come to believe in Jesus Christ. And that friend asked if there was anyone that could mentor him now. And he said yes, only because about two and a half years earlier, he had also been saved. And that he said he shouldn't turn his back on people even when they commit crimes. And so they strike up a friendship. And when Kiwi realizes that all that Colson's now facing, he finds, he searches this old statute that would possibly allow him, Huey, to serve the remainder of Colson's prison term. And so he calls him. And he says, I'm going to call the president and ask if I can serve your term for you. So that Colson could go home and serve his family. But it wasn't just him. Four other respected, believing Christian public servants offered to do the same thing. They were offering to take his place in prison. Friends, these men obviously were impacted by the scriptures. It says, remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. They understood this. They applied it. And they show for us what love looks like as they think of others as more important than themselves. Christian love has teeth. It's real. It's sacrificial. It continues here in Hebrews. So verse 4, the gospel also affects the marriage. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Your, your sexuality is a gift to you, but it's not something that's been given to you for you only. It isn't just for your pleasure and happiness. And in the, in the world we live with homosexuality and transgenderism and bisexualism, what is the root of all that? People to looking to satisfy themselves. And in a world where adultery happens and sexual immorality, what's the root of that? People looking to satisfy themselves. But through the gospel, we've come to know that your sexuality isn't given to you primarily for your own satisfaction. It's given to give to others. The love of a man and a woman in an exclusive, lifelong commitment, a lifelong covenant is what God has designed. It's a nurturing, unifying discipline inside a covenant between one man and one woman in order to create stable basis for a family. You don't get married just for you. You marry for the other. And if you're here this morning, you're single, and you're not ready to think of someone more 
than you are willing to think of yourself, then you're not quite ready for marriage. You need to pause. Because our marriages should display the gospel. And it keeps going here. Verse five, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What we shouldn't be, always looking to get more and more, building bigger and bigger. He says, be content, be satisfied. And this flies in the face of the world in which we live. We need to remember the money that we have is yours because God gave it to you. You may think you have it because you're a hard worker, but God gave you the strength to work hard and the endurance to do it. Or you might think you have the money because you're smart. Guess what? God gave you those smarts. Or you, you think, I have this because I've, I've maneuvered and, and I've done all these things to work up the corporate ladder to be where I'm at. But again, God is behind this. He gave you the strength and the smarts and the ability and the opportunity. Your money is not yours. The gospel says this. The gospel says your money is not yours. The gospel says your body is not yours. And where do I get that? How do I know this is true? Because Jesus Christ didn't treat his body as if it was his own. He didn't treat his glory and his wealth if it was just his. He gave them in order to make us part of the family, to bring us in. And this is what Christians do. We, we know and we realize and we remind ourselves that all of it's been given to us by God. And we're to use it to glorify him. And friends, this is what makes Christians look really weird in this world. All these things, I believe, help us in the study this morning in hospitality because it gives us a fuller picture. And we back up now to Hebrews uh, verse two. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. These three words here, hospitality to strangers, is a single Greek word, philoxenia. Uh, word is broken into two parts. Xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. And we get our word xenophobia from it, meaning the fear of people or fear of outsiders. And the other half is fill out the word for love. We get the word Philadelphia, which I've been there before. I didn't feel loved. But that's what it is. Love people like us, brothers and sisters. So the Greek word here is philoxenia, meaning to love people who are different than you. To love people who are different to you, to love strangers. Showing love to strangers and bringing them into your sphere, your life, your home as guests. That's, that's hospitality. And then it says, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So this alludes to Genesis 18, when Abraham brought three strangers in and showed them hospitality, gave them a meal, and afterwards it was told that he had actually entertained the Lord and, and his angel messengers. And you see in ancient times, hospitality to travelers was a, a very high value. They didn't have hotels like we do today. So when you traveled, you either knew someone where you were going or where you were relying on the kindness of strangers. And travel was almost impossible during this time. It was also very dangerous. It was normal in this time. You didn't, you didn't move to a new city when you were an adult. You usually stayed in the city that you were born. That was the norm. And so hospitality to strangers in ancient cultures was very, very important. It was a high value. Tim Keller says that hospitality during that time had four parts, invitation, screening, provision, and departure. 
And I want to walk through these quickly because I think they paint a better picture for us of what hospitality is. First, invitation. You find this in places throughout the scriptures, that when you're traveling to a new city or a town, you stayed outside the gate until you were invited in. You read about it in Genesis 19 or Genesis 24 or Acts 16 when Paul comes to Philippi. It happened all the time. You came to the gate and you waited for someone to invite you in. Second was screening. If you were going to invite someone in who was a stranger, you wanted to make sure that they weren't enemies to your town or village. And so you do a little interviewing. And if you were the, the traveler, the stranger, you would probably want to bring some sort of documentation to help this process. Like, this person knows me and you can trust. A third part of this was provision. Someone would come out and receive the stranger in. And if you were the host, then you would wash their feet. You would give them a, a meal, not just some snacks. No, you would, you would put the spread out. It was a, a meal for them. It was to be refreshing for them because it was hard to travel. It was dangerous. They were exhausted. And fourth, the final step was their departure. Ordinarily, as a traveler, you wouldn't overstay, usually just two nights. It was your job to make sure you hit the road after two nights as it, you wouldn't put too much burden on this host. So this is the ancient way of hospitality, but then God made a covenant with Israel and, and ratcheted things up a bit. I want to turn, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I still have you with me? Still awake? Are you sweating out there? Deuteronomy 10. Because you need to see it here. You need to see it in your Bible before you because God kind of sets up the stage a little higher what this looks like for, for his children. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You get that? They were once sojourners. They were once outside. And in verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. He's reminding these people yet again, all that he's done for them. He says, you do this. You show love for the outsiders because you too were once an outsider. You were once an outsider. You were outside the gate. So that leads to my second point this morning. We're going to stay in Deuteronomy 10, but the second one, why should we do hospitality? So in, in ancient times, hospitality was there for help and expediency. If you travel at all, aren't, aren't you thankful for hotels now? I mean... You think the check-in process is painful. It, it would have been a lot more back then. Now, traveling is much easier. But in ancient times, this hospitality was there so that people could travel if they had to. But God takes it to another level for his people. He gives his people a whole new basis for hospitality. And it's right here in this passage. He's saying to them, you were once aliens in Egypt. You were once wanderers in the wilderness. 
You were weary. You had nowhere to go. You would have died out there. But I clothed you. I fed you. And eventually I brought you home. So you're no longer strangers. You live by my salvation. And, and he says this multiple times to the Old Testament. And when he's painting the picture here for us, it's hospitality. Martha Stewart, eat your heart out. You don't have anything on God. God knows hospitality. And he, you see there in verse 18, he expands this ancient hospitality. It's not just a dinner or two nights. So he says he, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Do you see it? The fatherless. He's, he's talking about orphans. And the widows, he's talking about those who've lost their spouse. The, the sojourner, those that are lost and, and, and wandering. Those that are aliens to us and our ways. He's talking about immigrants here. People that come from other lands, refugees in many cases. It's a whole other sermon that I'll get to another day. But hospitality, he's saying here, is, is costly. He's redefining hospitality here, and then he gets, we go back to Hebrews 13, and God brings it up another level to them. Turn back to Hebrews 13. It says, as you, as you love one another in the church, brothers and sisters of the Lord, verse 2, then he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to those that aren't part of the church. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And he's saying to, this, to these believers, don't forget those that are still outside. They're outside the gate. Why is this important? I mean, why have we decided to have a whole sermon dedicated to hospitality? Well, why is he instructing the church to, to follow this? Is it really necessary today? William Lane in his commentary of Hebrews has something I found interesting that I believe opens up our minds a bit in the whole idea of hospitality. He says, for Christians, the expectation is that God will play a significant role in the ordinary exchange between guest and host. This expectation lends to hospitality in a sacramental way. The reference to those who entertain angels without knowing reflects the writer's sensitivity to the spiritual qualities of hospitality. He continues, and I'll explain. He says, it throws in the bold relief the element of surprise, stress in the biblical accounts as with Abraham and in Genesis 18, when what the stranger received was God's special envoy and with the Emmaus disciples in Luke 24 who discovered not that they had just unknowingly taken in an angel, but they'd taken in the Lord himself. And he uses this word sacramental here. It's a sacrament. He, he isn't adding another sacrament. Don't take that. It's not what he's saying. We know the sacraments for the church, right? Quiz time this morning. There's two for the church. What are they? So like a charismatic church this morning. What is it? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? Communion. So he's not adding to that. It's not what he's saying here. But what, is those, what are those sacraments made from? We, we go to the store and we buy bread and we buy juice. Any of you can do that. It's a common thing. When we have a baptism, I don't do this, Chris does it, but I'm sure he turns the hose on. It's provided by Edgewood, the water. It's common, okay? But yet it's been set aside for something special. We're, we're being obedient to what the word says. It's special. It's dedicated to the Lord to be used in that way. And, and when common things are used for something extraordinary in the economy of God, he uses it and blesses it in amazing ways. And he's saying hospitality can have that effect. 
So follow with me. You invite someone out for coffee and you just listen to them. You just listen to their life, their hurts, their problems. You're showing hospitality. You invite someone into your home. You have a meal and just listen to them. You talk with them. You get to know them. You welcome them into your space. It's not counseling. It's not deep social work. It's not a technique to learn. It's just common. You eat, right? Raise your hand if you're going to eat today, later. Half of you. The rest of you just don't want to answer my question. Inviting someone into your space to join you while you eat. It's hospitality. It's common stuff. And, and yeah, get this. God says that this is big. This is where the work of God happens. God works in the common things. John Piper said about this topic, he says, when we practice hospitality, we experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Wow, what a picture he gives us. He's telling us that when we give hospitality, we're being conduits, conduits of God's hospitality. And when we fail to do it, we're, we're more prone to forget. We, we forget then all that God has done for us. And why should we do this you know, in Deuteronomy 10? Because we've already been experienced. We've already experienced as believers the hospitality of God. And so who, who, who needs to be asked over your house because they're lonely? And you might say, how, how can I do this? I don't have a big house. I don't have a nice table. I'm not a good cook. And again, you're thinking like Martha Stewart. I don't see anywhere in scripture. I don't see that. She's not in the text. Some of the best meals that we, our family has experienced in people's homes were not because they were fancy or extravagant food. And when you're hurting, when you're lonely, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are fantastic. If there's someone there who cares about you, someone who's willing to receive you into their life, to have you be there, those are the most impactful meals. Peanut butter and jelly on paper plates because who wants to do dishes on Sunday? Those are the best meals, common meals. And these common meals, it changes us. Sometimes those meals, and this was impactful for me this week, sometimes those meals are a way of escape for someone who's tempted to sin. Have you ever thought about that? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes the way of escape for people is other people. And it hit me, when, when we provide hospitality, we can be the answer to that verse. Have you ever thought that you, your house, your time, are not your own, but rather God's ordained way of escape for someone else to flee temptation? 
It's mind-blowing to me that God would choose to use us in this way. And to think, even this week, how many kids are going to come in here just to escape temptation? God could use us in this way to, to bring them, for the first time, hope. That's hospitality. That's what it is. And I didn't realize that until this week that Sundays could possibly be a day for some of you that's a strong temptation to sin. Especially if you come here and you're alone. I've had people tell me in the past in defense for their traditions on Sunday that Sunday is their family day. And it sounds sweet and special at first, but this week I started thinking more deeply about that. Sunday isn't a family day, it's the Lord's day, it's His day, not mine. It's a gift he's given to us when he rose from the dead. And it isn't just a day. It's for the Lord. And if we use this day continually in a selfish way, we're stealing glory from God and possibly causing others to stumble. But we need to circle 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and remind ourselves that we might be a way of escape for someone else. One book that I've been reading the last two weeks is titled, The Gospel Comes with a Key, Practicing Radical Ordinary Hospitality in Our Postmodern Christian World by Rosea Butterfield. I love the book and I also didn't like parts of it. Not because I thought she was wrong, but I'm incredibly convicted. She has a quote here, she says, and you ought to know something about Rosea. Grew up a, a non-believer, a non-believing home, became a lesbian, taught at Syracuse University. She has a whole other book of her testimony and was brought in by the hospitality of a pastor and his wife and got saved and had to leave this closeness family of lesbians that lived in this house and had to forsake all of that. And she walks through this. Now she's married to a pastor. Incredible author. She says, we remember what it's like to be a new Christian, to be single, to have secrets that get you alone and tormented. And to have no place to go after worship. The odd tearing apart of the body of Christ as we each retreat to our own corner or click while the benediction still rings in the air. She says, it's an act of violence and cruelty to people in your church who routinely have no place to belong, no place to, to need and be needed after worship. Worship leaves us full and raw, and we need one another. 
She's challenging us. The, the word is challenging us to show hospitality. And our family tries. I know we need to do this more. And I know that as pastors this, and as elders, this is requirement this, the, for the office. This is who, who we should be known for. But we need the church to do the same. And it's a point of reference from what God has done in my life. I, I can recall conversations with people when I was growing up Ordinary conversations in a, in a simple church. Men in my life that were instrumental in asking about me and praying with me. And they weren't pastors. They weren't elders. They were ordinary men who were faithful to God. I wasn't called into ministry like Paul on the road of Damascus. It was through attending a local church and having relationships with other people. And it was through hospitality of normal, ordinary Christians. In fact, if Katie and I were sit down every time God has led us in our family for ministry. It was through the hospitality of other people. It wasn't in cold, sterile buildings. It wasn't around that. It was around people, around a meal, around normal, around common. So we understand this, that hospitality has a sacramental. It's a sacrament. It has this quality to it. And God uses it for amazing ways. Remember what hospitality is, what I said at the beginning. It's an attitude of heart that seeks to turn strangers into guests, then friends, and eventually brothers and sisters. It's the attitude of the heart that seeks out new people, and it seeks to make them feel welcome. And it's a practice inviting them into our space, into our home, taking them out for lunch or for dinner, and then opening up to them, talking to them, listening, making them feel accepted and desired. And again, we've seen this in our family time and time again. We've seen this play out. Some of our closest friends in this church all started when we were once strangers. We walked in this church not knowing anyone nine years ago. Strangers. And through hospitality, through, through sharing a meal together, we, we follow this pattern. You know, one, and I don't want to embarrass them, but you know, the Carters, Tim and Susan Carter. You know, I'll start from a meal around our table. I remember what we talked about. I remember what we talked about. I have no idea what we ate. But it didn't matter, you know. Was, they didn't know us. We didn't know them. And now, years later, miles traveled because of that. El Bear's tag, too, showing up for Sunday with a gallon of water. Comes to me in the, in, the, in, the, in the foyer. Hey, I want to get married. Can you marry me to my fiance? I'm like, who's that? She was in Georgia still. You know, strangers. I didn't know him. Through a meal and through time spent together. Now, you know, I mean, looking forward to baby James being born. Nothing special, people. It's just common. And you, you can sit there and you can think through these relationships in your lives, I'm sure. All because you were once a stranger into a guest, into a friend, and brothers and sisters. Friends, it's hospitality. I need to finish. I'm going long. I'm sorry. Number three, how do we do hospitality? I want to give you some practical things here. I'm going to give you three ways individually or as a family, and then three ways corporately done at the church. First, and I've said this over, I'll be quick, invite someone over for a meal at your house. And it doesn't have to be fancy. Sunday's a great day to do this. Set aside Sunday to do this. Block out your calendar and make this a practice. Either someone new at church or new in your neighborhood even. 
or work or, or maybe someone that you've seen at church for a long time and you've never, you never got to know them. Be flexible here. Be real. Don't, don't, don't be upset if they say no. And don't worry about having everything perfect in your house. Paper plates are fine. Just sit around a meal. Share care and concern for each other. Get to know them. Second, invite someone into your spiritual home, into your church family. If you've been getting to know someone at work or in your neighborhood, invite them here. And then tell them, I want to take you to lunch afterwards. Show them care, inviting them into your space, into your, into your life. Make them feel welcome. And then when you go to lunch, don't bombard them with the gospel. I mean, you, the conversation might go there because, Lord willing, we'll talk about the gospel here. But, but find out about them. Ask them what they liked about the service, what they didn't like. Invite someone into your spiritual home. And, and by the way, as I go through these, these, these are going to cost in some way. They're expensive in some way. You, you're either paying financially or with energy or time. It will cost you something to be hospitable, but it's worth it. We stick our neck out as a Christian and radically practice hospitality. Third, begin to host a care group in your home. We have more and more people that are beginning to attend EBC, and they're staying. I don't know why. I'm glad you are, though. But they're staying, and we want them to be involved in our small groups, and we need more to begin. This is a great way for you to show hospitality and care for others by, by opening up your home every week to, to people that are different than you. And you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a pastor or elder to host a group. You just have to love Jesus and love others. And, and I know this could be a big step for many of you, but we need this. We need more groups to start. An opportunity for you to show hospitality. So those are three ways individually as a family. Now, three ways corporately we can show hospitality as a church. First, serve people when you come to church. Seriously, do you know what I mean here? Remind yourself that this church isn't here to make all of your dreams come true. We are a church to serve one another. Here's some tangible ways you can do this. You can serve in a ministry at the church that has a, a, a impact here in, in the local body or an outreach. Awana is a great way to show hospitality to others, getting to know new kids, but also their parents. And if you can't commit to be here every Wednesday night, then pay attention. We have these times uh, like the Awana Grand Prix. Well, we've said this multiple times. We have it. Just come. You're not involved in Awana, fine, just show up because there's 30 to 40 families here and you can get to know other families. Another tangible way is VBS. You know, as Ryan said, we're, we've been praying to this, but we're kind of fearful of it because we have more kids pre-registered than we've ever had. And we need more people. But not only the people, but we want to show hospitality. So those that are here, we want to show them that we love them. We want to remember that this building, our stuff, is given to us by God so we don't get possessive over it. God has given this to us and entrusted it to us, but we need to remember that people always are more important than stuff. People last longer than stuff, right? Agree with me on that one, okay? People last longer than stuff. People last longer than new carpet. We, we serve and we show hospitality to those that come onto our campus. We want to make them feel welcome. Another way that it's tangible is serving as a greeter at church. We need more people to stand at the door and welcome people here in the morning. We have visitors each week, and it'd be great to have more people to greet them, to show where things are at. You know, a number of weeks ago, as, as a, on vacation, our, our family went to a new church. 
And we walked in not knowing where anything's at and we have four kids. And, and quickly, multiple people came up to us and wanted to show us where we take each of our kids. That was so helpful as a parent. And, and, and as you've been a part of this church for a long time, you know where everything's at, but when visitors come, they don't. And as parents, sometimes we can be angsty about this. We need people to greet them and say, here, here, let me, let me show you where your, this aged child goes. It's, it's showing hospitality. It's, it's showing a way that we can make them feel accepted and welcome into our church. We actually need someone to head up this ministry. Because right now it's falling on my shoulders and I'm doing a really poor job. We need someone to step in this way. Another way, big way that we can show hospitality is to come to church early and stay late. Yes, come early. What time does worship start? None of you know. It's when I wake up and get a cup of coffee. Worship starts at 10.30, but we have core seminars in Sunday school that start at 9.15. Whether, no matter which one it is, be here five to 10 minutes early and then greet people. You know, one of my most crucial ministries is after church. Staying 15, 20, 30 minutes after church. People that have issues and prayer or encouragement. Friends, make it your practice. Start thinking about Sunday worship on Saturday. Realize that it actually begins on Saturday. You know, I shared this on, on Facebook a while ago, and I want to share it again. Pastor Garrett Kell tweeted this because I'm on Twitter. He said, Sunday worship starts on Saturday night. Prepare by first, reading tomorrow's sermon text. Second, pray for your pastor's preaching. Please pray. Third, pray for the church to humbly receive God's word. Fourth, pray for unbelievers to come and believe. Fifth, get to bed early so you can show up early to bless others. Friends, Sunday morning worship begins on Saturday night. And this is a way that you can show hospitality to others. And the third way, and this is an easy way to show hospitality corporately, is to greet new people in the service. We transition in our service from announcements when we come up here to singing. And we ask you to turn and greet one another. And why do we do this? To be completely truthful, first is to allow the musicians to come up here. Okay? Second, we want you to welcome strangers. It's been the practice for over 2,000 years. Part of the Christian worship service had a greeting time. And what is it? It's a time where you can tangibly uh, reach out to someone else. And in that, you remember that you were once a stranger. Now part of this family. You remember that. You remember I was once a stranger. I didn't know anyone. And in that, you turn strangers into guests and hopefully into friends and then to family. That's what hospitality is. So, so what do I do now? For those that are married with kids, don't assume that this is like a light switch that you can flip on at any moment. You need to take time and talk together as a family and form a plan. You need to look at it like a marathon. And I've never run one, so I've looked it up online. When two people train for a marathon together, the slowest runner sets the pace. And the same is true for a husband and wife team for hospitality. The pace is set by the one who feels the most frail. Hospitality should never divide a family. It should make us stronger in Jesus Christ. If hospitality becomes a point of contention, something is wrong. 
You need to stop and reevaluate. You need to pray together. You need to wait in the Lord, map up goals and set values and work together. But you do it together. So I want to wrap it up here. I'm almost done. What's the reason behind hospitality? Why should we do it? It's, it's right here in the Hebrews 13 passage. I want you to point your, your eyes to verse five. It says, keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And here's the force behind it. For he, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what glorious truth this is to my heart. It's, it's one of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible. The author is pointing us back to the book of Joshua that God won't leave us and he won't forsake us. But friends, the Greek here is even more strong. Our English versions try, but none of them go far enough to paint a picture for us in a full way. In the Greek, the first phrase is translated, I will never, never leave you. You have two negatives. And then the second phrase is even more emphatic in the Greek. It says, I will never, never, never forsake you. Friends, there's five negatives here. He's over the top grammatically, just pounding us this morning with the, with the unconditional love and acceptance of God here for us as his family. Do you hear it? He's saying there, verse 5, God will never, never leave you. He will never, never, never forsake you. you you've grown up singing this song if you've been to church at all. How firm a foundation. On the first, fourth verse, it says, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul through all hell should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. He wasn't just trying to fill a line there, okay? He wasn't just thinking, I got to meet, beat the, the beats of the song. No, he's literally giving us what this phrase here in Hebrews 13 says. I'll never, 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 never forsake you. You hear it, friends? You need this truth this morning. I need it. God will always be there to keep us. And here's why it's important for this sermon. Is if I know this truth, if I know that God will never, ever leave me, if he won't leave me in need, that he will never forsake me, that he won't abandon me. He will always be there. If we know that God will always be there for us, we're now free to be hospitable. We, we are now free to show love to strangers. And how do we know this is true? How do we know that it's true that God will never leave us and never abandon us? Look down at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place and the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You know what outside the gate means here? This is significant. When Jesus Christ died, he experienced the absolute opposite of everything that the Bible talks about hospitality. Remember when I talked about an ancient culture, a stranger would come near the city gate and hospitality is taking the stranger in, but Jesus Christ was already inside and he was thrown out to be killed. That's the opposite of hospitality. And you too were once home. Long ago, as Pastor Ryan Wood mentioned last week, you were once home. Back in the Garden of Eden, that was home. Home is a place where you're accepted, where you're loved. This is a place that there is no threat of death or leaving. There's no disease. There's no pain. There's no trouble. We were home. But in Adam and Eve, and they turn away from God, we chose our own way, and we're thrown out. 
And you may think this world is your home. You may, you may have a nice home. It's comfortable, a good job, a good family, a good life. But friends, you are not home. We're not home. We're, we're wanderers. We're restless. We're all searching for our own way. Because we've been moved from our home. And remember in ancient times, before you were let in the gates, there was a screening. Remember that? And we've been looked at. We've been screened and we've been found wanting because of our sin. We can't go in on our own because if we did, we would just want what we want. We wouldn't submit to the king. We would want to be king. We would want to run things. And so in our sinful, unregenerate state, we're outside of the gate and we deserve it. We don't deserve to be inside. We deserve to be outside, banished forever. Christ came, the only one who truly deserves to be home forever, and he was cast outside the city for us. He was removed. He was kicked out of the city. Why? For us. He was killed outside the city. Remember, too, he said to his father on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God did this to Jesus, but we deserved it. Jesus took our shame. He took our blame, our sin upon himself. And he took our punishment on the cross. And Jesus was cast out so God could bring us in. And on the cross, we see radical hospitality so that we could finally be brought in and be accepted. And he died for us to make room for us in the household of God. And if you look hard enough, you will see hospitality all over Scripture. Jesus, time and again, serving the disciples, washing their feet, turning water into wine, feeding people, 4,000 people, 5,000 people, like a host. The one that sticks out to me, John 14, where Jesus is preparing for us. He says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. He won't always be a weary traveler. He has prepared a place for us. And his radical hospitality is going to remove all the weariness and fulfill all of our heart's desires. And then look at the last two verses here. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We can pay the cost of hospitality. We can stick our neck out to get to know someone else to bring a stranger in. Your friends may not understand. You may have, you may have to be the one who reaches out to that neighbor in your neighborhood who no one wants to be around. You may have to bear that reproach Your family might not get it and they won't be happy with you because you don't come to family Sunday afternoon dinners anymore so that you can invite others into your home. It's bearing reproach and it's for the purpose of serving God and others. And we can as Christians now spend our money on hospitality and spend our time and energy on hospitality Remembering that nothing is compared to what Christ has suffered for us. And then verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
We are not home yet. There is yet another city where we will live forever with God. Friends, we need to look for outsiders. We need to look for them in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our church. And we need to show hospitality and spend our time and our money and our energy on this. We need to show hospitality. Christ was hospitable with us and he has brought us in and we are forever grateful. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, God, that your word still brings conviction, brings challenge, even in my own life and my family. Areas where I know I need to change and to grow in. And even for our church family. God, help us, help our, our hearts and our attitudes to realize that we're surrounded by people that are outside the gate. And us showing and going to them and showing hospitality is, is, is part of that process of being able to share the gospel, the hope that we have. God, help us not to neglect. Remind us even just so currently this week as we open up our campus to kids and recognizing that some kids, they may not know how to act here. Help us to love the kids more than our stuff. Help us to love kids more than getting everything done. Help us to show love in every way, shape, or form. Not out of willpower, not out of guilt, but out of joy, knowing that you showed this to us, that we can serve boldly and show hospitality to those that come into our midst. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that are lonely. You would help us as a church to reach out to them. Maybe we, we would make it common practice in our homes to have Sundays open for anyone, anyone that needs a place to go after worship. That we'd be willing and, and desiring to invite in. That we'd be able to minister to those that are struggling. Help us to do this, God. Help us to be faithful to your word and to show love to those that are outside. And we do it for your honor and for your glory. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.